Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron. Uh, am I really echoey to you guys? Yeah, man, I'm suddenly sounding like God uh, to you. Uh, so I apologize for that. And uh, teens, even though, yes, I will be involved with your uh, group, the goal is to find someone who is actually cool uh, and uh, would do a great job leading that. So uh, come and help us create something cool so someone else will want to be a leader in that. Uh, Iowa State fans, congratulations. Hawkeye fans, I'm sorry. As a Nebraska Cornhusker fan, I feel your pain. I have felt that pain every single Saturday for the last two years, like yet again. Uh, oh man, let's not talk about that anymore. <laughs> Today uh, marks the 21st anniversary of the events of 9-11. 21 years ago, four planes crashed into the Twin Towers, into the Pentagon, and into a field out in Pennsylvania, and it caused the eyes of the entire world to be glued to their TVs. Absolutely shocked. How in the world does something like this happen? But let me ask you, what made the events of 9-11 so incredibly shocking and memorable? Many of you are probably thinking the fact that planes flew into the two towers I still remember I was on staff at a brand new little church out in Denver, Colorado, and we were having staff meeting, which meant it was just me and the pastor, and his wife came in and said, uh, you guys, a plane just hit the two Twin Towers. So we went down and started watching the news, and we were watching as the second one hit, and we were still watching when the towers fell. So yeah, I, I agree. If that's what you're saying has made that so shocking, I, I, I'm with you. It, it, it just was devastating and awful. However, before that moment, I had heard of plane crashes before. This was not the first time ever. So I don't think that is what made this so incredibly shocking. Well, maybe it was the fact that these towers fell. I mean, no, no one would have expected that. You know, it, it, both towers fell one hour and 42 minutes after the planes hit. Maybe that's what it was. And I would agree. I, it was, I, just, I was stunned as I'm sitting there watching the television, watching these towers crash down. And yet, before that moment, I had seen video of buildings coming down. Now, it was through controlled explosions, but still, I had seen that before. So I don't think that is exactly what was so devastating and shocking. Maybe it was because of the buildings that were hit. I mean, they, they was, these were iconic buildings of, of American. The Twin Towers, the, the Pentagon, the, the plane, by the way, that went into the, the field in Pennsylvania, many believe it was actually supposed to be targeted at the White House. This was not just some random accidental thing. No, this was an anti-American message, loud and clear. But we all know that these buildings could be repaired. Like, the Pentagon has been repaired. The, where the Twin Towers were, something new has been erected, and there's now a memorial. Like, yeah, it, it's awful when you hear of, like, devastation causing billions of dollars of property damage, but we all know this property could be rebuilt, so by this point, you're going, okay, Aaron, clearly you have a, a point here, an agenda, just get on with it. Well, I think what made it so incredibly shocking was that on that day, September 11th, 2001, 2,996 people died. Now, you might want to push back, um, but Aaron, like, there have been tragedies that have seen more loss of life. I mean, I just recently was listening to uh, a book all about World War II. Uh, the, it, it was a little bit of a biography of Churchill, all of the things that happened in London before America joined the war. 
And just in England alone, 44,000 people lost their lives over the course of, of a year or two as, German, as Germany just continued to bomb them. So you're kind of going, well, Aaron, 44,000 compared to 3,000. I mean, that kind of makes that worse. And, and, you know, on a level of devastation, okay, yeah, the, the, the bombings were horrible in World War II. But so often they knew the bombings were coming. The air raids would go off, church bells would ring. Everyone knew, get to a safe space. And everyone each night realized, this might be my last night. The difference with 9-11 is these were moms and dads just going to work. These were salesmen getting on an airplane to go try and land their next sale. These were people headed off to a vacation or to go to a funeral or to a wedding or to go be by the bedside of a loved one. These were people just going about their everyday lives and instead their plane goes down, their workplace is invaded, and how many of us, when we watched the, the news, saw the images of people who were in the burning buildings and they jumped out? I think it's the loss of life in such an unexpected, horrific fashion that made this so shocking and memorable. Do you realize that anytime there is a disaster, whether it's a man-made disaster like a 9-11 or a school shooting, or it's a, a natural disaster like a tsunami or a hurricane, Anytime we're reading or listening to the news, we want to know how many died. Because we know that property can be rebuilt, but these lives can never be brought back. To me, this shows that we intrinsically know humans have value. I don't care what your religion is, what age you are, what culture you're from, how much money you make, all of us have this deep understanding, whether we acknowledge it or not, humanity has value. But I don't think you have to have a natural disaster in order to realize this. If you've ever held a newborn baby in your arms, if you've ever been at the bedside in the hospital of a friend fighting for their life, if you've ever been at the funeral of a loved one, you know you know just how valuable humans are. The thing is, I don't think we do understand just how valuable they are. And that's what I hope as we begin this Imago Dei series. This, uh, the word Imago Dei is the Latin phrase meaning the image of God. Today, I'm going to hopefully show you from the scriptures how the image of God makes the difference. Not only the difference in who we are in re uh, relation to the rest of creation, but to show just how valuable we truly are. So if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to Genesis chapter 1. If you are a first-time guest with us, we are fine with digital Bibles. So if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out. If you do not own a Bible and would really like to have one, we encourage you either download one to your phone or stop by our resource table out in the lobby. We've got two different translations there. We would love to give one to you. That would be our gift to you. And that way you can use it when you come back on Sunday, but our dream for you would be that you would use this any day and every day of the week. So we'd love to just have you have a Bible because we open it up here every single week uh, on Sunday. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 today. We're going to the first book of the Bible, to the very first chapter. So as we get ready to read from Genesis, let's uh, pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, um, I believe that you wrote these words that we're going to study today thousands of years ago, through the pen of Moses, for people even now to learn from. 
And so that's what I ask, is you would help us to learn. Many of us come in here with our preconceived ideas of the way the world works. And Lord, I pray that, that whether we are right or not in that, that you would be the one to teach us today. That you'd help us to understand how you designed life and to truly understand just how valuable humans truly are. So God, I pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to what you want to say. That today would not be about what I've put together, but it's about what you want to say and need to say to this collection of people on this particular day. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1 starts off with what uh, many Christians call the creation account. It's this poetical narrative of how God went about creating things. Now, I realize some of you here today or listening in online or on the podcast later, you, you might believe that it was a big bang and there was evolution. I'm, I'm not here to quibble with you whether God used evolution or, or the way exactly Genesis did it. But what I want you to see today is what the biblical account says, that after God created stars and rivers and rose bushes and platypuses, he went on to create his crowning achievement, humans. So join me, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Several weeks ago, I was scrolling through Twitter, and a guy I follow retweeted a video. Uh, in the video thumbnail, I could see it was a, a pastor, a preacher. And the uh, caption to it said, The gospel in one minute. Well, this had me curious, because as a pastor who believes that the whole life, death, and resurrection story of Jesus, the, the gospel, I believe it changes everything, and so I wanted to know, how did this guy say it in one minute? Like, maybe I could learn some things from him, you know, the way he, he would put things. It would give me an opportunity to bring that, whether into my preaching or in a conversation with someone. So my curiosity got the best of me, and so I clicked play. And the, the video clip, I could tell it was from a, a much broader sermon, but the video clip started with this pastor saying, we must communicate the gospel. And with that, he was getting ready to launch into his gospel presentation. So I'm, I'm ready. Here we go. And he says, we must communicate that people are sinful. And out of this 80-second video, the first 40 seconds were all about the sin of humans. And this bothered me. Not because I disagreed with what he was saying. If you were with us back in August when we kicked off our series in the book of Colossians, I began the whole entire series helping you understand kind of the journey I went on many years ago of understanding the importance of the gospel. And to help you understand that so we could appreciate what was going to be taught in Colossians, I took you back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we see the sin of Adam and Eve. And how their sin has therefore been passed down through the generations and every human sense has been born with a sin nature. So I did not disagree with the content of this pastor's preaching. Everything he said was good. In fact, he's a way better preacher than me. I mean, it, it was so poetical, it was so powerful, but he spent the first 50% pointing at the congregation, basically, you 
are a sinner. Starting a gospel presentation that way basically treats the Bible as though it begins with Genesis 3 and completely ignores Genesis 1 and 2. And that's what bothered me. Years ago, uh, Leanne and I went on a double date with a couple. Uh, We went out for dinner, and then afterwards we decided to go back to their place and play a game. They had gotten this new game they were all excited about. So we show up at their place, they pull out the game, and they, because they played it a bunch, rather than pull out the instructions, they just start telling us all about it. So we listen to them, we ask them questions, we kind of figure out the game, and play begins. Well, I am proud to say that as we start working through the game, I figured it out. Like, I suddenly realized I have a perfect strategy, and I am going to win this game. And it wasn't going to be beginner's luck. I mean, just, I don't know, three, four years ago, I was playing a game with uh, my brother's family, and uh, all of a sudden, my brother looks over and goes, uh, Aaron, you won. I, I, I didn't know. All right, that was beginner's luck. But on this double date, no, this is not beginner's luck. I've got this figured out. I have a winning strategy. I'm going to win on my very first time. So I'm feeling really good about myself. I'm feeling brilliant. When all of a sudden, the wife of the other couple says, I win! No, 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 you, you can't. Like, my, I'm going to win. And I look over, and what I see she has, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, no, that you didn't win. And so I ask a question, and they're like, oh, yeah, she won, and they start ch- showing me everything. And I ask another question, and the couple suddenly realizes, oh, we, we forgot to tell you that. <laughs> in other words, they started their instructions kind of in the middle. They were so excited to get to share with us, their friends, their, their favorite new game, that they kind of forgot the key fundamental portion. That's kind of, in a sense, what this pastor did. By starting in Genesis 3 with his gospel presentation on the sinfulness of humans, it's like you totally leave off the fact that, no, the story actually starts with God. The story starts with this amazing, perfect, holy, creative God who is outside of time and out of his goodness and perfection, he creates humans. I think you have to go and understand Genesis 1 to truly appreciate just how devastating Genesis 3 is. If all you do is just jump into Genesis 3, humans are sinful, you don't realize why that's so tragic. The response could be, so what? I don't need to listen to this. But when you go back and you realize, no, God did this, and here's the difference it makes. You now understand why Genesis 3 is so bad. So that's why I want today, on the beginning of this series, to take you back to Genesis 1 and help you see the difference that the Imago Day makes. So let's look at this together. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is there in verse 26, God said, let us. All right, now, he's not asking for a salad. All right, that joke did not work. Uh, cross, that, cross that one out. But who is he talking to? Right, he, he, is he talking to the angels? Is he talking to the animals that, are, that he's already created? Because he, he can't talk to the humans. They're not created yet. They're about to be created here in a couple of sentences. Well, he's actually talking to himself. We see him say, let us make man in our image. But when God talks to himself, it's not like how you and I talk to ourselves. We talk to ourselves when we're frustrated. Oh, Aaron, come on. Or you need to remind yourself of something. Okay, remember when you get home, you got to do this. No, there's one God revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the three of them together are creating the rivers. They're creating the stars. They're creating porcupines. And then they're like, hey, brilliant idea. 
Let's create someone, something to oversee all of this and let's make them in our image. So this begins with God. He's the one who creates. And notice it says, that, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The Hebrew word that gets translated image throughout the Old Testament also gets translated for a statue. Anytime there's like an, an idol, a statue that is made, it's said that it is made in the image of this. In other words, it resembles it. It is not it. The statue is not the person. It resembles the person. Likewise, when God created humans, we are not gods, but we resemble God. If you look at all of creation, I mean, uh, what is it? Psalm 19 says that, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And yet, even the heavens, as much as they declare his glory, can't give us the same glimpse of God as looking at a fellow human. What is it about humans? We have a will, intellect, personality, deep emotions, abilities to form these great bonds. And that is the image of God. That is what separates us from the rest of creation. Right, but, but Aaron, hang on just a second. I know some really intelligent animals. Like, I've seen some of those videos. I mean, some animals are really amazing. I, I'd agree. And yet, as intelligent as animals are, as maybe personality, I mean, I have a, a little dog, Kaya. Some of you have met her. She's got quite a little personality. You know, there's some animals that they, they seem to have kind of a strong will. And yet, I have yet to see animals build a skyscraper. They haven't put together smartphones. I don't know of any dogs that have written a book. I don't think there's a little cat conference circuit where they all come to hear them meow and then, you know, figure out how to terrorize their humans. Like, animals are awesome. They're great. I love them. They're not at human level. The difference there is the Imago Dei. Yeah, just to make sure you're not confused, the, the ESV, the English Standard Translation that I'm using today, it says, let us make man. It's not talking about just men, males, right? Verse 27 makes it very, very clear. It says that when God created man in his own image, it says male and female, he created them. So this means all humans, men and women, bear the image of God. They all are separate from the rest of creation. They were put there to care for creation, to oversee it, and to resemble God. God. But today, I don't want you just to see that the image of God is what separates us from the rest of creation. My hope and dream is to help you see just how valuable that image actually makes humans. Back in uh, 2017, a uh, Saudi uh, businessman who later became the minister of culture in Saudi Arabia, his name is Badr bin Abdullah Al Saud. He made the largest art purchase ever in history. In 2017, he bought this picture for $450.3 million. Now, just so you know, there are paintings that are considered more valuable, like the Mona Lisa. However, the museums are never going to sell those things, right? So this is one of the few ones came on the market, available, and this really, really, really rich billionaire out of Saudi Arabia bought this thing for $450 million. Now, if I had the artistic skill to replicate that, 
I can guarantee that man would not have bought my work for $450 million. Probably wouldn't even buy it for $4.50. Why? Because that one was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. What gives that painting its worth is the artist. Likewise, God's artwork, his masterpiece, is humans. And his signature upon them is his image. When he breathed air into the lungs of Adam, he also breathed his soul alive. That's God's signature. It's like his brand being put down upon them, saying, this one's mine. I created this. And all of creation, God said it was good. But when it came to mankind, he says, it's very good. It was his crowning achievement. And so, the value of a human is therefore not based upon how attractive they are or how much money they make or how much they agree with our politics or, or what age they are. Their value comes from the image of God. It comes from the artist. Now, you probably would agree with that when you're holding that newborn little baby in your arms or, or, or when you're like head over heels in love with someone or you're absolutely infatuated. Yeah, you would say, yeah, they're valuable. But when it comes to your crazy uncle who keeps spitting out those crazy conspiracy theories, when it comes to that cranky neighbor that no matter how nice you seem to be to them, they're always just a jerk, that, that person that continues to post those ridiculous political ideas that are exact opposite of you, or your selfish ex, those people, no, they're not that valuable. It's like we all walk around with invisible sticker books got our own little sticker roll. And if we like someone, yeah, we take off the valuable sticker. We even have ranks, you know, like, oh, you're more valuable because you actually said yes to marrying me. Oh, you're more valuable because you are my child. Oh, you're good, but yeah, not quite as good. But then we encounter someone that, oh, they just grate us the wrong way. We just don't like them. We don't get them. We can't understand them. We have different stickers. Avoid. Ignore. Just be nice, but keep ghosting them. Or maybe we even pull out the trash sticker. The problem is, you and I cannot determine the value of a human soul. That is set by the artist, the creator, by the image of God. And so that crazy uncle, valuable to God. That cranky neighbor, valuable to God. Your ex, valuable to God. That person who gossips at work, that kid at school who tells the off-color jokes, that person who's just so rude, valuable to God. Now, do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that because everyone's valuable to God, we should just have one great big worldly group hug and we'll just, everything's fine. Genesis 3 makes it clear. That valuable image of God within humans has been broken. When God branded humans, well, sin came in and tried to scratch out the brand. And so it is out of that brokenness that humans have gone on to do some horrible, deplorable things. It's out of that broken image that they lie, they cheat, they steal, they kill, they abuse, they take. 
They fly planes into towers. But even though these broken image bearers do these deplorable acts, it does not mean they still don't have value. So the value of humans is not determined by you and me. The value is set by God. What we have to do is figure out how do we go about, therefore, acknowledging the value of others. Throughout this series, I'm going to do my best to try to put like forth a challenge. I don't want to just help give you some theological truths from what I believe the scriptures say. I, I want you to live this out. Our goal at Riverwood is not just to become like smart and understand the Bible. It's to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And so I want you to go and live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, but that means you have to view humans like Jesus. So my challenge to you this week is who has God already put in your life or who might God put into your life in the near future for whom our society might overlook, but to whom God wants you to show love, to indicate to them you have value. It might be your elderly neighbor. This winter, you might need to be the one to clear his or her drive. It, it might be that coworker who just grates against everyone, and you're going to have to figure out ways to let God use you to show that they have value. Maybe it's that outcast who always sits alone at the lunch table or in the library. Who is it that seems to get overlooked that God is saying, that's the person I want you to show love to. I want you to let them know that they have value because my image is in them. For me, one of the people groups that I have felt called to over the years are kids. Now you may be saying, well, Aaron, kids aren't like, you know, they, they have value. Kids matter. And I would agree. However, if you look at what our culture values, kids don't match up. Right? Kids aren't making money. They make a ton of mistakes. They're still getting an education. They aren't really contributing to the direction of our society. Kids so often get overlooked. Kids are to be seen and not heard. And in some cases, it's better if they're not even seen. A example, yesterday as I'm watching one of the football games, commercial comes on for a cell, cell phone company or a cellular plan. And it's this couple, and they're looking into the, the camera with these dead faces, and they're saying, yeah, we got married for the cell phone plan. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And then to save more money, we had more and more kids, and then the camera pans out, and then the kids are terrorizing the living room. And they're like, because it just seemed like the responsible thing to do. And yet they look absolutely miserable because they have these kids. And then they switch to the sister of the wife. And she's sitting in her nice, clean home where it's quiet and there's no kids. And she's saying, yes, but I got a cell phone plan with this company and it's just as good, if not better, than theirs. You don't need a family to get a family plan payment. Kids aren't valuable. And yet, for some reason, I can't explain it, but throughout my entire life, basically starting about middle school, kids just were drawn to me. Now, in high school, middle school, there was one part of me that, that kind of liked it. You know, how many, uh, don't you want to be liked by people? So it's kind of nice to like have someone like actually think I'm cool because, I, I mean, that lasted for like 15 minutes. But another part of me was annoyed. Like I wanted to talk to my friends. I wanted to like go hang off. I didn't want like, you know, kids climbing all over me and, you know, punching me and, and stuff. And yet I started over time realizing this is an opportunity. 
So now you understand why Riverwood is so committed to Kids Creek. From the very beginning, when we had almost no resources, primarily people resources, we just were like, we've got to do this. And so my wife, amazingly, just stepped up and for years led that thing because kids matter. It's why I didn't just coach my kids' baseball teams so I could have more time with them. That was definitely part of it. But it was another opportunity to try to influence some other kids. It's why for years I was a mentor through the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. And when that closed, I decided that we needed to help have something new. And so several of us former bigs in town formed together and we began a brand new mentoring program called All in Mentoring. And so not only am I on the board for that, but we're trying to help get mentors in the school systems. And so I signed up. So once a week for 30 minutes, I head down to Southeast uh, School and Tyler and I hang out. To help give you just a practical idea, I invited Corey Chamberlain, uh, the uh, executive director for uh, AIM, to come and share with you a little bit about it. Because if you're thinking, uh, where can I go? How can I show love to these vulnerable, overlooked people? Well, here's one way. So, Corey, if you come on up. Good morning, everybody. Um, so my name is Corey Chamberlain, um, executive director for All In Mentoring. So I just want to tell you a little bit about the program and some stories and how you can become involved. Um, so All In Mentoring, or AIM as we call it, is a one-on-one -on -one mentoring program uh, new to the Waverly Shell Rock area. And like Aaron said, it kind of came about after Big Brothers Big Sisters in Waverly closed down. And Aaron, along with some other former mentors, got together and said, yeah, this is still needed in this area. Um, so uh, we started making matches back in February, and so far we have 16 mentees and mentors meeting. Um, we currently offer a school-based program. So we have kids um, in all of the Waverly Shell Rock schools, including St. Paul's in the Lead Center, and um, they meet for 30 minutes a week with their mentor. Uh, they can play games together. We have a match that likes to sew together. They can go outside and play catch. Um, all of that just trying to build a friendship and a bond with each other. So we serve kids anywhere from grades K through six. Um, they can be referred by their school or the parents can sign them up. Um, we really have no eligibility requirements other than that they are K through six. Um, we have kids that come from a variety of different backgrounds. So some kids are referred because they maybe struggle socially with their peers making friends. Um, some kids maybe come from a single parent home and need a male figure in their life. Um, and other kids just need another positive adult who doesn't need another person cheering them on. So uh, even though we're a very young program, uh, we've seen some really cool impacts so far and I wanted to share those with you. So in May, we had our mentees take a survey and most of the mentees had um, met with their mentor for a max of three months, some of them only a couple times. But all of the kids said that they felt that their mentor cares about them. 100% said that they look forward to their time with their mentor. And all of them said that their mentor makes them happy. Um, so eventually we'll get more data. We'll look for some of the more tangible results. But it was so cool just to see in the short time, the three months that we were going last school year, the, the impact that it was making on, and how they were feeling. Um, I one time talked with a girl who had just been matched with her mentor the previous month, so they had met maybe four times. And I asked her if she had learned anything from her mentor yet, if she had gotten anything out of the experience yet. And to my surprise, she really quickly said yes. And I said, okay, what was, what's that? She said, I got a new friend. So she was a kiddo that was struggling socially, and just to have a, a new friend 
um, made a difference to her. Um, over the summer, I talked with a mom, um, and she said that her son's time with his mentor has really made him more bold and comfortable in, his sh in sharing with his dad things that are going on. Um, so he had originally, the mentor, or mentee, I'm sorry, had originally enrolled because he kind of had a strained relationship with his dad. They didn't like the same things. And so mom thought that maybe finding a mentor that liked similar things would kind of help him connect. And unexpectedly, his mentoring relationship had bettered his relationship with his dad. He was more comfortable um, sharing things. He had learned with his mentor that he could talk about his feelings, he could express himself and what he was interested in, and he's gone home and done that with dad too. So n none of us knew that that was gonna come out of that. So, um, but what we need right now is mentors. Uh, we have, ne kids need someone to care about them, to show interest in them, um, just to be a positive influence. So um, kind of going along with Aaron's sermon today, one of our four core values at AIM is respect. And the tagline that we've kind of put with that is we want mentors who will respect each kid so next generations come to know the realization that every human has dignity. And that's exactly what Aaron's kind of pointing out today. Um, kids need to be loved and feel important. So um, if you have a flexible schedule and you can make 30 minutes a week um, during the school hours work, we'd love to have you as a mentor. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. So feel free to come talk to me. If you are joining us online, uh, you can go to allinmentoring.org, and uh, you can uh, see the exact same things that uh, Corey talked about there. And by the way, everyone, uh, our very own Dan Erickson was a big part of helping that All In Mentoring website get built. So if you want to see a little bit of his portfolio, highly recommend it because uh, the website looks good. Um, also, if you can't do that 30 minutes once a week, uh, you could still help out in other ways. Uh, every once in a while, we need some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, we're going to be doing some fundraisers. Uh, we could have you help out with those things. It won't be during the school day. They'll be, you know, evenings or weekends. Uh, once or twice a year is what we're right now trying to figure out. Uh, so you could help out that way. Also, we're a brand-new uh, nonprofit, and so we're still kind of in the early fundraising stages. So if you want to donate to it because you believe in the cause of trying to make the difference in, in the lives of kids, we'd love your support there as well. So yeah, stop by talk to Corey, or if you're online, send her an email, and uh, we would love to see you maybe connect. But this is just one idea. What's the idea that God might put on your heart? Who is that person that, that God's putting near you, that that's the person you need to go and connect with and, and help? And, and you might not know right now. I would just encourage you, pray. Just ask God, who is that person? Before we end, though, I want to give you one more piece of evidence that to me shows the value of humans, but also helps you see just how valuable they are. And to help show it to you, I'm going to take you from the very first book of the Bible to the very last book. So if you still have your Bible there, open it up to the book of Revelation and head to chapter 5. The book of Revelation is a uh, very different, odd book. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, the uh, uh, apocalyptic about the end times it's written by a guy by the name of John. A lot of people think it's the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples. A few people think it's a different John. But this John, because of his faith in Jesus, gets exiled. Many of the apostles were being killed for their faith. But they sent John to this island, Patmos. And it was on Patmos that he has this vision. 
the first three chapters of Revelation are the vision of him basically having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus dictates to him seven letters to seven different churches. But in chapter 4, the vision shifts. It changes. It goes from Jesus saying, hey, I want you to write this down, to an angel saying, hey, why don't you come on up here to heaven? There's a few things we want to show you. So in chapter 4, he ends up in the throne room of God. And he's just overwhelmed by God's glory, and he's describing all the things that he sees. And then in chapter 5, he notices a scroll. This scroll is there being held by God, and he starts catching on. No one's worthy to open this scroll. Like, it's all sealed up, and none of the angels can, can open it, none of the elders that are there. Like, no one is worthy to open up this scroll. And John starts to feel like, oh, no, this, this is bad. And, and he's on the verge of, like, weeping when all of a sudden Jesus shows up. When Jesus shows up, the elders and the angels burst forth into song, and in verse 9, Revelation 5, verse 9, here's what they sing. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. All right, so Jesus was the only one worthy to open up the scroll. What was it that made him worthy? For he was slain, and by his blood he ransomed people for God. When God created Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1, he, a perfect God, created perfect people. But then, in chapter 3, we see them go from perfect to imperfect, from righteous to unrighteous, from holy to unholy, to go from being spiritually alive with the breath of God in their lungs and soul to becoming spiritually dead and eventually dying a physical death. Genesis 3 changed everything. But as we saw in week one of our Centered series in the book of Colossians, God's response to the sin of Adam and Eve, his response to Genesis 3, is the cross. Jesus was slain, willingly. Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on human flesh, lived a fully human life, but he's the only human to have ever lived who never sinned. So therefore, he did not need to die for his own sins. And yet, because his image is in you, and it's broken, that breaks his heart. And he wanted you back, but sin stole you. It tried to scratch out the brand. And so Jesus came to restore the image, to draw it back out, and to help you become who God originally created humans to be. Jesus was slain, and by his blood, he ransomed people. He purchased them. He brought them back from sin so they could come back into a relationship with God. So how valuable are humans? They are worth the life of Jesus. He was willing to leave it all behind and to give it all up for you. If you have been beating yourself up mentally, emotionally, you need to stop because you are beating up mentally and emotionally. You are abusing the image of God. You matter. I'm not trying to excuse the mistakes you've made. I'm not trying to say that those things that you did were, were okay. But you need to know you 
are valuable. But at the same time, are there people around that you have been judging, deeming not worth your time, not worth your attention? You've been saying things, whether aloud or in your head, because they think differently than you, they act differently than you, they speak differently than you, they smell differently than you. And God is saying, they also matter to me. And you realize, if we're going to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, if people matter to God, they have to matter to us. So, as we move into our time of communion, I want to invite you to think through who matters to God. And I want you to first realize, that includes you. So if you have been beating yourself up emotionally, this is your time to confess. God, I've not been viewing myself the way you view me. But if you uh, have realized that, that you've been judging others, you've been putting a trash sticker on them, this is your time to confess that. If you are not a follower of Jesus yet, I hope you just heard very, very clearly the gospel presentation. What that pastor said in that video was accurate. You are a sinner. But what you have to realize is your story doesn't start with your sin. Your story starts with God. He's created you. He knows you. He loves you. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that even while we were not just weak, not while we were just sinners, it even goes on to say that when we were enemies of God, meaning our sin kept us opposed to God, even when we were enemies, Jesus died for us. You do not have to clean up your act first. You just come right as you are because Jesus has already done it. There's nothing you have to do to earn this love of God. You do not have to try to impress him. Instead, you just come in prayer, in humbleness, and you just confess your sin to him. And you just invite him to begin that process of restoring the image of God within you. Because as God restores that image, he makes you more like Jesus. It's the image of Jesus that is in you. And what this broken world desperately needs is people who will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And God wants to use you. But it begins by you humbling yourself and accepting what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf. If you've made that step, you've made that decision, you've put your faith upon this crazy story of God the Son coming to earth, dying our death, but then coming back to life, then ask yourself, who is it that I need to go and be Jesus to? Jesus came for me, the outcast because of my sin. Who is it that I need to go to? The outcast who needs to know that they're valuable. So as we move to these communion elements, remembering that that bread is the body of Jesus, as we take the cup, realizing that that represents the blood of Christ shed for our sins, as we take that into us, we're saying his story is my story. And because Jesus gave his life for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to take these elements and ask God, who do you want to send me to? Who needs to know they're valuable? Uh, if you are not a follower of Jesus and you're just not ready to make that step yet, there's no pressure. I, I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully abstain from taking these elements. These elements are all about Christ. And as I just said, when you take them, you're saying that his story is your story. But whether this is your first time or your 40th time with us, if this story is the center of who you are, then come. 
Let's worship. Let's surrender. Let's ask him, who do you want to send me to? Let's give our lives to this. Because this world needs to know they're valuable. And it can begin with us. So let us do this now in remembrance of him.